Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, political servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featured commentary by retired television journalist Derek Blakely, Republican commentator Stephanie Hitt, DePaul University's economist Mike Miller, Rebecca Sive, author of Vote Her In, and we also a little bit later on in the broadcast, we're going to be joined by Gerald uh, Pechenek, and uh, he is with LaRouche Pack, and uh, we'll talk to you a little bit about that in our last half hour of this evening. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border, nice to have you with us. And uh, let me uh, begin uh, by asking uh, the uh, the Congress has passed now a $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief package. That's what they're calling it, signed by the president. And it passed uh, in the House and Senate with no Republican votes. Stephanie hit my question to you, uh, since you're a Republican, and Mike Miller can weigh in on that as well. Uh, was was that wise? Is is it wise to have no Republican uh, at least appear to be uh, stepping forward to help the American people? Um, I think in the long run, yes, because here's here's the deal. Uh, more, more than half of that relief doesn't even pertain directly to direct COVID relief. So what we've done now is this bill is just the Democrats. It reminds me of going away for the weekend and leaving the keys to the liquor cabinet with my teenagers. And I think that they are using this as just the beginning of their opportunity to seize all the political junkets they've been dreaming about over the last few years. The problem is that there are some very specific things in that bill that, yes, help. And and Republicans have been very clear about that. And that's those are things they would have agreed on if the bill had been just that. OK, but the problem is it's nothing more than keys to the liquor cabinet. OK, Mike Miller, uh, you're an economist from DePaul University, so you can comment on from an economic standpoint, but also on a political standpoint. Um did the Republicans make a mistake by not having any of their fingerprints at all on this legislation? I think not. Uh, it was going to pass regardless. So they just in case it blows up, if it does well, what they I don't think they have anything to lose. Uh, it, it clearly is a relief package. It's not a stimulus package because uh, there's a thing we talk about in economics called the multiplier. Right. The multiplier at this point in the business cycle <clears throat> and uh, in this economy is probably 0.2, 0.3. In other words, for every dollar they spend, the GDP will go up about 20 cents, not by a dollar. Uh, certainly the people who were hurt by unemployment, they are going to benefit, which they should, considering that the government was the one that shut down the economy and caused their problems. My biggest concern has to do with the fact that they've bailed out the states. This creates what economists call a moral hazard. <clears throat> That's when you pass a policy that encourages people to behave improperly. So the states now know that if they can go and spend crazily, that there's a good chance the federal government would come in. I want to go to out. Rebecca Sive, who's the closest thing to a card carrying a, a Democrat or progressive, I might say. Uh, Rebecca, your response to uh, to what happened, the importance of this bill politically to the Democratic Party. What does it mean to them? 
well, it's a great victory for the Democratic Party. And most mm. important, it's a great victory for the American people. Uh, my understanding is that the polling was that 75% of Americans were in favor of a substantial relief package. Unemployment is still very high. Over 2 million American women have had to drop out of the labor force because of the need to take care of kids at home. So there are just a whole series of issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, I think that the way to look at this bill, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, uh, but if you are someone who cares about America, is the same way people looked at the bills that were passed by FDR beginning in 1932 mm -hmm. and the Congress then. Uh, this was the worst uh, economy, the worst social context, oh. you know, over half a million people have died. So dramatic action was necessary, not that kind that benefits uh, the mm -hmm. rich, which is what Donald Trump passed uh, a few years ago and did nothing for the general public. So I okay. think it's a great victory for the American people. Okay. Derek Blakely is a, a retired uh, journalist with the CBS and NBC at the network level. Uh, Derek, uh, what's your answer to, to the question? Can the Republicans get away with not having anybody on this? Because generally speaking, when you're sending taxpayers money, they they like that. They may not be thinking long term or financially responsible. They they see checks coming in the mail and uh, they remember that maybe only Democrats uh, thought that was a good idea. Well, I think the polling has shown <laughs> that uh, a majority of Republicans uh, support the bill. Um, and, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi uh, characterized it as the Republican position is vote no and take the dough. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Republicans will cash those checks as well as Democrats. Look, th this was uh, definitely needed. Republicans acknowledge that it was needed. Uh, is there waste in the bill? When you're when you're passing trillion dollar uh, aid packages, you know, there's waste in the bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's waste in the bill. I mean, that's 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 a given. But on it's also needed, desperately needed. And it marks a, a departure from 40 years of uh, economic stimulus packages or relief packages. Mike Miller, uh, uh, you know, pointed out a difference there. But it it's a it's a pointed difference in government largesse because this is targeted toward households that uh, need it most, long term and employed, lower income families, and it's a departure from uh, trickle down economics, which is uh, uh, tax cuts that uh, really uh, benefit the the better off. Mm -hmm. uh, Janet Yellen was on the show with the George Stephanopoulos today. Uh, uh, the new Fed chairman, and uh, she didn't seem to have any problem with this, uh, Mike. Uh, is that just a political response from her? I have great respect for Janet Yellen. She was an excellent yeah. head of the Fed. I uh, actually hated to see her step down. Mr. Uh, Trump didn't really care for her. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, though, some of her reaction here is political. Um, there's no doubt that uh, the the policy does not have the full stimulative effect. And there is some concern about inflation coming by that uh, – you know, this, what makes this one different is that the Federal Reserve is buying so much of this particular issue of treasuries. And when that occurs, that means that money is being created out of nothing. Explain, that's explain why some to the people audience, are concerned over Mike, inflation. Mike, explain to the audience how this might trigger inflation. Well, here's what would happen. The, uh, the federal government runs a deficit and it has to be financed by borrowing. Uh, they have an auction on Mondays. Uh, the Fed is not allowed to 
participate in those auctions. It would be you and me and the Chinese and everyone else. And then somebody lends that money to the government. What the Fed then does to make it easier for the government to borrow, they will then go to people like you and me and buy those bonds from us. But they pay for it using money that they create out of thin air. So that when the Federal Reserve's uh, balance sheet rises, it is paid for by essentially creating money. Now, if that money gets into the banking system and sits and does nothing, which is what has happened over pretty much the past 10 years, it will not have an inflationary effect. If, however, that money begins to circulate, then you'll have all kinds of money chasing too few goods and inflation will be the, will be the outcome. When we come back, I want to find out uh, $350 billion uh, are going to states, municipalities, and, 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 and tribes around the United States. I'd like to know, because I've already heard from Susan Mendoza and others, such state treasurer of Illinois, that they're going to use that to pay off some old bills. I want to talk about what that does to the possible economic return uh, in a moment. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation, it's your news, your nation. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway, 1-800-723-8289. I want to talk about uh, the the, the the stimulus checks. We've got got the COVID. We have the address of the president uh, this week. Uh, uh, Rebecca, let me start with you. Uh, All this is happening at the national level. And again, uh, the stories that are happening at the national level are really very important stories, including what's happening on our southern border. But the issue that seems to be dominating much of national news is what's happening in the state of New York with Andrew Cuomo. And it began with an investigation of whether or not uh, he was cooking the books on COVID. And I think uh, because many thousands of people died because of that, that is a, a bona fide important issue. But an issue that's been near and dear to your heart, and that is sexual harassment in the workplace, the treatment of women. And I want, right. to, I want to spend a segment or two talking about uh, your position on, on Cuomo. Most of New York's political establishment has said that they believe he's got to go, he's got to resign. Where do you come down on whether Cuomo should go or stay? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm troubled by the whole scenario, first of all, because I really feel for these uh, women who uh, have said that the governor... Uh, mistreated them. Um, I think that we should separate the two issues. One, you know, both are being looked at by the attorney general Mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, That is the first being how they counted the numbers of people who died uh, in nursing homes and hospitals, right? So that's one thing that 
the AG there will look at. The other thing is that there will be an investigation of uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, alleged behavior. Uh, apparently also now there's some talk about impeachment in the New York State Legislature, mm -hmm. both very serious matters. So, I, you know, I, I guess I join my sisters in saying that I think this would never happen in public life. And that, uh, you know, if, if the investigations find that, that he has um, done what these women have said, uh, you know, that, that deserves to be addressed. Um, I, I think I... Um, let, me, let me ask this question, Rebecca, and I want to get you, and I also want to get Stephanie to weigh in on it, because uh, Stephanie did some uh, legal work in New York. She worked on sexual harassment, so maybe I'll start with, with Stephanie on this. What is it about these cases where, and again, in, in, in many cases, these charges are over things that took place years ago or sometimes right, right. decades ago. This did right. not. These, these took place, you know, within the last couple of years. Right. So my question to you, which I think is asked frequently, is what, you, have, you have bright, strong women. They're right. working for a powerful political player. Uh, and why does it take them so long to step forward? And uh, obviously there is some... Uh, I guess, comfort in knowing that they're not the only one making right. the charge, but kind of explain, getting your points, and I want to get well, Rebecca as well. Yeah, there's a, there are a couple things going on here. First of all, um, you know, I, and Rebecca, you, you probably have experienced this too. You know, I, I started out my career uh, doing um, sexual harassment cases in New York City, um, a very dynamic, um, er, growing area of the law back in the early 90s. Uh, and, um, one of the things is that as a woman, and I will say this, I think Rebecca might agree, and I had this, I've had this conversation, there isn't a single woman out there, especially you know my age, who've worked their way through law school in the ranks. I don't think, I think that almost every woman could point to an experience in their life where there's been somebody that has made them feel uncomfortable, who is creepy who is a little too handsy or touchy. I think many, many women have that experience. Uh, so Were the superior in the workplace? Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, Rebecca, but I think, you know, whether it's in academia, whether it's a thesis advisor, what you know, or, I mean, well, we all know who that handsy yeah. guy is. So what? I'm going to say that exists. That's human. There's some human nature element I want to get re uh, Rebecca's response to that. Rebecca? I think Stephanie's right that uh, most women have experienced harassment in the workplace, at least anecdotally in, in my years working and talking to other women. So yes, that, ha that does happen and it's wrong. Right. And, and, you know, there, women deal with it in different ways. Um, there is a question, you know, what I think when I was working on, you know, the, these issues back in the early nineties, I think there was a real effort, you know, we're talking what, 20, almost 30 years ago, of developing a really good source of case law and criteria and standards by which women who are in the workplace could understand and feel comfortable that they could file complaints, that human resources were becoming on board with understanding these issues and the nuances and the sometimes lack of evidence, he said, she said, that captures these things. So I find it kind of interesting that here we are 30 years later and, you know, 
people are still having these experiences. They're not comfortable complaining. They're not comfortable standing up. One of the things in the early development of the law was that there was this created standard by which sexual harassment became defined by kind of whatever made the woman feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also an onus at that point um, on the woman to make sure that she made it clear that that was unwelcome, uncomfortable. Um, and so that's, the, you know, those things kind of get muddied. <clears throat> but um, and it sounds like human resources or whoever is supporting these women in their workforce in the New York governor's office, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, but. We're, we're but writing many, a new playbook. But but oh. many men, and I, I don't want to speak for all men, but I'm just saying is when these stories have come in in the past, and I want to hear from our male guests as well, um, the guy's sort of response to this is, well, just stand up and say no. Say no. And, I, and I've heard this from women as well. I mean, is there part of that, Derek and, it's, and, and, it's, and Mike, I want, I want you to weigh in on that. But I mean, it's embarrassing. These are uncomfortable and embarrassing situations. And so as di- and you hear the stories of some of these women. I mean, they're very dynamic women. They're not wallflowers. Um, and but what's wrong with what's wrong with not, not what's wrong. That has been. Uh, can't women just say no in a in a in a tone that will get the attention of whoever the uh, potential abuser is. Dare, I, no, I, well, I, I want to hear. I want, I want to hear from my. I want to hear yeah. from our, our men, and then we're going to go back to Rebecca and and Stephanie. Go ahead, uh, Derek. Well, whether you're talking about the corporate world or you're talking about the political world, uh, you, you're often dealing with very powerful people. Yeah. Uh, you, you know. Governor Cuomo, the top Democrat in the state of New York, the, the family name, um, you know, uh, I, I can understand how women would be do intimidated. Believe, do reporters believe that story? Because I'm sure in, in the course of your career as a journalist, you know those mm-hmm. politicians who have rumor, who have rumors and innuendo about them that they're touchy-feely guys. I mean, uh, Look, how I, does that deal with, how do you deal yeah. with that when, uh, if somebody were to drop a dime on uh, on someone that uh, you were covering? Bruce, not only that, not only the political world, you know, I worked at CBS, yeah. oh. which was rocked by charges. Yes. Uh, from the top with Les Moonves, from Charlie Rose. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. worked at the network, uh, you know, I, and, and the local stations, there yeah. have been... Uh, 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 accusations of uh, uh, racial uh, uh, animus uh, on the part of the leadership. I'm shocked by all of that because I, <laughs> I I never saw any of it okay. in the time that I worked. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I thank God I never participated in it. But um, but that shows you that you can be a part of an organization and a part of an organizational culture and not really understand completely what is going on. Mike Miller, what about in the academia? Oh, my. Well, you know, (laughs) men who do this are pigs, and they have to be dealt with. I don't deny that at all. But the one, I think that there has been one horrible outcome of this, and that is due process has been destroyed. Uh, Betsy DeVos did bring it back within universities where men are just not assumed to be guilty and their, their reputations destroyed over lies. Uh, I, I see that Kavanaugh was, they tried to destroy Kavanaugh on based upon preposterous accusations. And here we have Cuomo 
Now, I think Cuomo should get the, the right to due process, to mm -hmm. some kind of hearing, just like Kavanaugh should have gotten it. But, of course, that's not going to be the case. Cuomo is going to be treated differently because he's from the in party, not the out party. And, and that the trouble in academia is, you know, we, we have this belief that women don't lie. Well, I'm sorry, women lie. Right. And in the in the academic setting, men who who prey upon women are pigs and they have to be dealt with. Do you, no uh, let's go to Rebecca. Rebecca, would you acknowledge would you acknowledge what Mike just said is that sometimes women lie? <laughs> Well, sometimes men lie too. Of course, okay. <laughs> of course, right. We're all I human. The point, the, yeah. the point let, let me just comment on this, please. Uh, I think the point here is number one, the issue isn't, so to speak, due process. The, the issue is uh, that there are personnel practices, Derek pointed to this, in whatever workplace in which uh, a hostile workplace should not be created, that's illegal. A racially discriminatory uh, workplace should not be created, that's illegal. A workplace in which uh, bosses, whether male or female, prey on, on their staff is not right either. So the situation here is uh, very straightforward. You know, there have been allegations, there will be these investigations. Maybe that will change if the governor actually resigns. We don't know that yet. But I think at the moment, what we need to do and focus on, whether it's Andrew Cuomo or Donald Trump or any man who okay. uh, has been accused. Rebecca, of we've got to be right back, back shortly after the break. Opinions are everywhere when you watch the news. But what about your opinion? Why can't you just get the facts to decide for yourself? News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, a nightly newscast in primetime that doesn't tell you what to think. Seven nights a week, News Nation will deliver you news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. It's your news, your nation. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls, not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. We're going to take a moment now and let each guest introduce themselves. And uh, we're going to begin with Rebecca Sai. Rebecca, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the book you wrote a couple of years ago that uh, is uh, still very much uh, a part of political discussion in America. Well, I'm a Chicagoan. I've been active politically since the uh, mid-1970s. I've held public office. I've worked with candidates uh, taught at the Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and uh, written two books about women in public life and public office and also many articles. And so I consider myself an advocate for uh, equal opportunity for women and for their ever increasing power and influence, including voter in elect the first woman president. We go back. We go back also many years. So when you were very much involved in the uh, election of Harold Washington as the first That's African American, right. so uh, uh, you were involved in in 
in helping plan that very first debate that propelled him to the uh, fifth floor of uh, City Hall. So, again, nice to have you back. Again, congratulations on the book. We're going to talk a little bit more about it uh, as the discussion unfolds. Stephanie Hitt, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're up to. I'm a reformed attorney. I started out my career in New York City, nonetheless, doing things like sexual harassment law and so on, and even a stint at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, And then... um, I am no longer a chauffeur to my my four children. They can all drive, but I am a political activist uh, here in Evanston, where we're where we're speaking in the studio. And uh, I've been a delegate to national conventions, uh, run lecture series. I write for online magazines and do e- editorials, and uh, um, just like to stir things up in my neighborhood. Okay, Derek Blakely. From well, a similar neighborhood. You're, yes. You're folks, uh, we're, what, 10 minutes apart. We're neighbors. Yeah. Um, I, um, I'm a native Chicagoan. I spent uh, uh, eight years as a network correspondent, television correspondent, and uh, 36 years as a Chicago television reporter. Uh, the last uh, eight years or, or so uh, covering politics. And uh, I'm, I am now a, a sometime part-time teacher at uh, DePaul University. And I also write for a political website, the Center for in Illinois Politics. Okay, Mike Miller. I grew up in uh, lovely Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a proud graduate of Slippery Rock State College, where I got my BA. And when I finished my PhD at Pitt, I came to DePaul, where I have been for the past 41 years teaching macroeconomics. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Uh, just a program note, at 7.30 tonight, actually uh, one hour from now, we're going to be joined uh, by a gentleman, uh by the name of Gerald Petchnik, and uh, we're going we're gonna to turn back the clock because uh, in 1986 in Illinois, supporters of Lyndon LaRouche upset the regular Democratic Party at the statewide level, and they actually were able to nominate a supporter of Lyndon LaRouche as Secretary of State and Lieutenant Governor. It set the Illinois political world on fire, and the reason why that might be important to you living elsewhere and beyond Illinois this evening as the the 35th anniversary comes up next week is uh, Gerald happens to believe, and I think there's some credence to it, is that the political issues that were being discussed back then that were uh, were voted on by, by many people who were voting at that point they have uh, the antecedents of some of the things that Donald Trump was talking about in 2012, including those people that are, are still riled up and, and marching on state capitals around the United States. So, again, it's a 35-year look back on something that I think gives you some, some, some uh, insight into what's happening politically in the United States right now. So that's, uh, again, 7.30 tonight uh, in about an hour. Uh, Stephanie, I want to go back to you because we were talking about uh, the the uh, the charges against uh, Cuomo and 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 you want to make a very strong point about there there's a lot that's in the court of public opinion correct but not much written in the court of legal opinion correct I think there is a huge distinction uh, between um, sort of public liability and legal liability and one of the things that I will continue to go out there and say is I I am defending I can't believe I'm saying this I'm defending Cuomo on the issue of he is entitled 
to the full measure of due process and a fair and impartial investigation, just as anybody else is. And one of the things that, um, and we hinted around this, is that, you know, sometimes people lie. And that's why we have due process. And he, like anybody else, is entitled to a full hearing. And those allegations need to be, if they if they are true, they need to be sworn to. And they need to be questioned and okay. cross-examined as well. So Stop everybody's entitled go, to that I, fair I want I want to go back process. to Rebecca because you make a very important. These are allegations that have been made, but according to what right. Stephanie has just said, that in these seven cases that we're aware of at the moment, uh, no one has actually, you know, taken an oath to what they have publicly stated uh, in a newspaper or magazine article. Uh, right. how, how do you view uh, that uh, that perhaps a lack of uh, final um, importance to a charge that's made. I, I think this is a whole lot simpler than than we're uh, perhaps. I mean, okay. it happens it happens every day of the week that people accuse other people of nefarious behavior. Right. And you know, so there that's what's going on here of a particular kind. There's no obligation. Uh, on the part of either the person who is the brunt of it or the people who who uh, take those actions to immediately go into some legal proceeding that you know there is free speech. So uh, there's no requirement there. What is the, also the case is that uh, you know politicians make government officials uh, make decisions all the time about what is best for them. Uh, in their public career, and sometimes they resign from positions, sometimes they stick it out, sometimes they go through legal proceedings. I mean, there are a variety of, of ways in which they view this, and we've seen all of the above uh, in the context of men who've been accused of uh, sexual harassment and more. So I think that there's no, you know, there is not one way uh, this is going to roll out as the parties uh, decide. That is to say, the AG is going to pursue this. Perhaps the New York legislature will. And the governor is entitled to make his own decision, mm -hmm. just as any other official is, about whether he wants to resign from office or not. Rebecca, when you were last on this program, if my memory serves me right, we were talking about uh, the women that were running for the Democratic nomination. Mm -hmm. My recollection was that you were a supporter of Kamala Harris who was one of the first in and certainly was the first out. She is now the vice president of the United States. And during the hearings of Brent Kavanaugh, uh, she was most vociferous, not only in her public denouncements, but also in her interrogation of, of, of Judge Kavanaugh uh, on the issue of sexual harassment and the allegations that were made against him. Because she is this important figure, political figure now, do you think it's important that she should step forward and offer an opinion on what's happening to Andrew Cuomo? Uh, because if she doesn't, it looks like she's only interested in the subject if it's a, a conservative Republican who is the, the victim of the charges. Well, I, I, again, I, I don't look at it exactly that way. It's the duty of the Senate Judiciary Committee, of which uh, Senator Harris was a member, to question nominees who require Senate confirmation. And certainly Senator Harris's um, questioning of Judge Kavanaugh 
was uh, tough, uh, but we've seen that thousands of times in many other circumstances with the roles reversed. That is a Republican uh, senator questioning a, a, a Democratic appointee. So that's one set of facts that happens every day. One can quarrel with the style or even with the substance, but that is that Senate process. As to whether uh, Vice President Harris should speak out now, I, I don't actually see it quite that way. I think it's President Biden's uh, ultimate decision about whether he wants to weigh in on what's happening with other uh, elected officials around the country. I think he takes that duty seriously. And I think that uh, Vice President Harris, like many vice presidents, uh, is not going to get ahead of her president on any matter, this one or any other. Certainly, you didn't see uh, the prior vice president do that in the case of uh, the president he reported to. Mike Miller, I want to get Mike's response and then uh, Stephanie's. My, I, I understand everything uh, uh, that uh, Rebecca said that made a lot of sense. My only issue here is that this is the court of public opinion and Kavanaugh was destroyed and they had no problem defaming the man based upon essentially no evidence. Uh, I did not do that because I wanted to hear whether could there be any truth to it. Uh, the fact the same thing happened with Joe Biden. He was accused what appeared to be, uh, I don't want to say legitimately, but it certainly was plausible that he did the things he did. And of course, it was buried immediately. And the Me Too movement went completely silent. So I'm not talking about the court of law. I'm talking about the court of public opinion. And it seems to me that and the, the same people who attacked Kavanaugh will not attack Biden and they will not attack Cuomo. The accusation that you're referencing was not the touchy-feely part of the oh, early no. part of the Biden, this was a charge this was made a by sexual assault, right? He pen penetration, the whole bit, uh, and, and it, that was the accusation. Right. I don't yeah. know if that was true. I by Tara Reid, and yeah, it also be, and also it became uh, uh, the the Tara Reid allegations uh, was buried. Uh, but it, it but was then, buried. We got We got a break. We got then a break. Candidate Kamala Harris said she believed her, though. We got to come back. She did uh, come and, out and, and say and that. Hear, and also, we'll hear from Derek Blakely on the subject as well. But again. Uh, the the uh, the allegations of Tara Reid against Joe Biden were similar in some ways to the allegation of the sixth accuser of Andrew Cuomo. I'm Bruce Dumont. One 800 We'll get back to calls, not back to calls, to calls when we come back. You should form your own opinions when you're presented facts without bias. That's what we call news. Every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America, news has a new primetime home. News Nation, without all the talk and without an opinion, so you can make yours. It's not how it used to be. It's how it should be. News Nation, seven nights a week on WGN America. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com because it's your news, your nation. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery, and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
Beaumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us this evening. We were talking about that uh, one thing that the national media did when the uh, Tara Reid made her charges against Joe Biden. Uh, they were a they were a semi big story for a couple of days, but uh, she was dismissed uh, frequently, uh, not to the level that anyone has dismissed any of the charges against Mario Cuomo, or not Mario Cuomo, but Andrew Cuomo. Andrew, yeah. And uh, some of the similarities insofar as, you know, reaching through a blouse to, you know, uh, right. bottle someone, those those were the charges that were made against Joe Biden that yeah. fell, you know, on deaf ears. Let's, let's go to a call. We've got a caller calling in uh, from uh, Washington State. Dave, go ahead. You're on the air. Hey, it's uh, cockamamie mate Dave here from Washington. Okay. Uh, just a... Just a couple quick things. Um, the uh, Cuomo, I, I not really do not agree with him on most things, but uh, I, I'm kind of like one of your guests uh, in saying that they have a hard time uh, defending him to a degree. But uh, I, the whole Me Too movement, I think the problem is that we've swung the pendulum from one side to where there was far too much uh, what I would say is also sexual harassment in the workplace and, and just totally uh, things that should not occur. And we've swung the other way to where now the uh, mere inference of something uh, in, ends up with a court of public opinion going to this guilty unto proven innocent. Um, the main uh, accuser that I had a problem with was number three, which as far as I had heard, and I haven't heard anything, maybe it's changed, um, the first time it came out, the news media kept hitting on, well, we have a third uh, credible accuser, and she says that he dared to ask her if he could kiss her, and he touched her on the back. And my immediate thought was, oh, my God, I'm going to start having people coming out of the woodwork from my college years calling me, calling me up for sexual harassment because I'm like, come on, if that's sexual harassment, then we're crossing the line into uh, crazy town, and we have, to, we have to have some degree of limits on what we're going to say is sexual harassment and what is not. Now, if you're trying to, if it's a loud room, you're trying to pull someone closer so you can, yeah. you know, talk to them. And I would, and it's sort of polite to ask someone before you're going to try and kiss them. I would think. Uh, now, obviously, if they pull away from you, and you can feel that in your hand, if you're touching them, you can kind of feel if they're trying to move away from you, and you continue. Obviously, you've crossed the line. Dave, but you Dave, don't let know me, if you Dave, can kiss someone to ask them. Dave, Dave, stay on the line. I, I, I want to bring Rebecca uh, back into the conversation because Rebecca, of those guests who, who are here this evening, uh, this is an issue that's been part of your political mo for what 25 years or more. So my question to you is, do you agree at all with what Dave said is that perhaps this was a good idea? I mean, the public revelation of, of, of women being treated in the workplace uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that made them feel uncomfortable or icky, has it reached the point where the pendulum has swung, where we're getting, where we're trying to redefine uh, what's right and what's wrong in the workplace and uh, it maybe has stepped over the line, at least when common sense comes into the picture. I, I don't think the question about the workplace is whether something is icky. I also don't think it's a matter of, so to speak, common sense. Uh, there are rules uh, and policies that govern the workplace, and uh, both federal as well as local, and you know each institution, if they're doing it right, has their own rules. The real point here is that nobody, no woman or no, and no man either, should uh, be in the position of, uh, in the case of what the caller was mentioning, 
being touched unless that's something that they've requested. Now that's not gonna happen in a workplace. That's not what the workplace is about. So that is always wrong. However, uh, however it occurs, the purpose of the workplace is to be free from harassment, able to do your job, be able to be judged for how you do your job according not to how you responded to someone trying to kiss you, but how you performed your job. But on, but on um, the job, on the job, Rebecca, is it wrong for one employee to say to another employee, either the same sex or the different sex, is it wrong for them to make any comment on the attractiveness of that person? I think that it's not material to what should go on in the workplace. And I would say, yes, you should not do it. The point of the workplace is to engage in the work, to be friendly with your coworkers, to respect your coworkers, to follow the guidance that's provided to you by your supervisors. The purpose is not to discuss people's appearance, not to discuss their attraction to you or vice versa. That's not the purpose of the workplace. And what we all know from our own experience, as was alluded to before, uh, is that this has you know, never been a two-way street. So even if it were arguably a good idea, it is not. It is men who have felt that they have had the right to uh, comment on women's appearance, to approach them and say, you know, I really feel like kissing you or whatever it is. That is just totally out of line. Stephanie, you're I would, I would agree. <clears throat> I can remember doing management training 30 years ago where we, we, we talked about very carefully um, the kinds of jokes you could tell and the kinds of comments. And I remember advising, so I when we talk about a pendulum swing, I, we've been at this spot for 30 years. I feel like we haven't maybe progressed. And that is, I can remember telling managers, you do not get to say to a young associate, oh, that dress looks good on you. Oh, are you wearing a new outfit? Oh, is that a new hairstyle? Because what that means is that that you have broken a little barrier between working with, dealing with someone on the merits and the issues of the workplace, and you've gone that one extra step to talking about appearance. So 30 years ago, it was inappropriate for someone in power, basically, we'll say that, to comment on other people's method of, you know, I'd just like to say I agree with the work... I agree with the workplace differential, but I met two of my girlfriends when I was an employee of a job, and they actually came on to me, and I didn't have a problem with it, and I think it should work both ways. Okay. That's your point. Thanks very much for joining us. That was our caller, Dave, from Washington. Also, Stephanie Hitt has been with us in hour number one, and Mike Miller's been here, and Stephanie and Rebecca Sive. They will all be back for hour number two, and uh, Derek uh, Blakely has another obligation he's got to move on to. So, Derek, thanks for joining us for hour number one. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Another full hour of Beyond the Beltway coming up after Network News.
For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win... We all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. 1-800-723-8289. In a half an hour, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, sort of the origins of maybe some of the the Trump support, what really was behind the uh, surprise in uh, 2016 when Donald Trump came basically from uh, nowhere to capture the Republican nominee and nomination and ultimately uh, the presidency. We're going to talk about that. Uh, And again, if you're a longtime Trump supporter, I'd be most interested in your assessment of how that discussion goes. But uh, we're back with our guests uh, and Mike Miller from DePaul University. Stephanie Hitt is our Republican in this hour. Uh, Rebecca Sive is our Democrat, and uh, she is also author of the book Vote Them In. Vote her in, right? Vote her in. Um, My question to you uh, from a standpoint of other issues that are being discussed, I want to get everybody's reaction to uh, the way in which COVID 
has been treated since uh, Donald Trump has left the scene and whether or not uh, you're optimistic that the president's a very aggressive plan to get uh, everyone vaccinated, uh, at least on a list by uh, May 1st and uh, hopefully shots in the arm by July 4th, uh, whether that's likely to happen. Mike, Mike Miller, where do you come down on, on sort of the, the controversy now over uh, uh, COVID and whether or not we're going to get the shots uh, the government feels we need? Well, of course, I think part of the problem is that you and I are sitting in Illinois and it doesn't seem to be operating that well. I went today, I'm 67. I went looking for a place to get uh, the shots. We, I can't find anything. Walgreens says there's nothing. Walmart, CVS, my healthcare provider, nothing. Um, I think that, uh, but you had asked, what about, has it changed since Mr. Biden took over? And the answer is absolutely it has. The narrative has completely changed. The, the focus upon how many died today has completely changed. Uh, you know that I believed from the very beginning that the shutdown was probably the greatest uh, blunder of social policy, uh, maybe ever in the history of the United States, um, that uh, all, the, all the pain that has been caused so dramatically outweighs any benefit we gain from, from the shutdown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, all the, the thing was we were going to have uh, Mr. Trump was attacked dramatically because he's, he said we could have a vaccine and we may be able to return to normal sometime in 2021. And of course, here we are. We're very close. We believe to herd immunity and people expect by this summer we will be back to normal. Rebecca, what's your take on uh, the the change in the COVID structure and and plan for America uh, since the transition in political power? Uh, My take is that it's about time. Uh, President Trump wasn't really interested personally, nor was his team particularly interested in a very rapid rollout of vaccination program that would require coordination at the federal level. Uh, and What about the is, acquisition of the vaccine itself? Does he get some credit for that? The acquisition of the, I, I think the people who get the credit for finding a vaccine are the scientists who found, who, who found it. I think the issue is uh, became once it was clear that there, that they were on a very fast track and that we would all be able to be vaccinated according to some protocol uh, toward uh, the beginning of 2021. The issue then became how fast can you get shots in the arms? Because you could have something sitting on a shelf, but unless you have a plan for getting it out to people who need it and want it, uh, it's not much of an accomplishment. And I think what I was just pointing to was that President Trump did not uh, put together a rollout Uh, of uh, a vaccination program that would enable people to be quickly, rapidly within six months uh, is the present plan, be vaccinated if they want to be. So I think that's the real issue at the moment. So Um, you, uh, just to to be clear here, and then I want to hear from Stephanie, just, uh, just to put it in context, you don't give the Trump administration any credit at all for what I described as the acquisition of the vaccine, the pressure on the scientists, the pressure on the FDA to 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 step it up and and find a a vaccine. You don't give them any credit for building that pressure. What I said was something different. I don't give President Trump any credit for treating this uh, pandemic uh, in the way it ought to be treated. Okay. Um, I think that he. 
He persisted in saying initially that it was going to go away. There's lots mm -hmm. of uh, quotes you can look at for that. He right. then said he didn't believe it was necessary to wear a mask. You know, all kind. He held super spreader events. So I give great uh, kudos to the scientists uh, who work for the federal government, who worked with private industry to get a vaccine, a vaccine uh, developed and and made available. Okay, Stephanie, hit your reaction. I have a well, I have a very different reaction. I if you were to wake up today and listen to you know Joe Biden and the Democrats and his speech last Thursday, you would think that for the last year, Donald Trump did nothing on COVID and that nothing happened for COVID until Joe Biden became president, which is, of course, the narrative. I mean, here's here's the facts. We know that this Trump's administration did react very early to to the, the concerns of this virus by shutting down travel bans. He listened closely to D Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and all of those people. He put into place a lot of those things. He also made a very, very conscious decision. People can debate whether it was the right decision to let lockdowns and reactions and mask mandates and testing and PPB, all of those things done at the state level. And we see that different states in this country reacted phenomenally different. And I find it very interesting because he created Operation Warp Speed. And he did it in a very Trumpian way, a signature Trump way of cutting down the bureaucracy and getting the government out of the way so that we could get that virus in. He was mocked for it routinely. I want... And so not only that, Operation War Speed also included the rollout. The point is that the vaccine has been rolling out. Biden got his vaccine before Christmas. And where did that come from? It didn't wanna, come from Joe Biden. I want to ask. I, I just find it another, ridiculous that they okay. have erased everything that happened. I want to ask another question. I want to start with you, Mike. Yeah. Uh, when I was watching the president uh, the other night address the nation, did you happen to see the speech? Were you watching I saw parts of it, yes. Okay, here's my question. As I was watching the speech, I was saying to myself, I wish Donald Trump had just a couple of ounces of the empathy or the sincerity or the ability to read the teleprompter, whatever it was. I thought that Joe Biden was coming through the television set in a very empathetic way for those people who had become victims of COVID-19. I wish that the president had just a couple of ounces of that. Do you agree with me? I mean, it, where there's do you no doubt that? that in terms of style, Mr. Yep. Trump comes across quite uh, brusquely and so forth. He, it, it's a style that some of us, you know, some people find very interesting and fun. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Biden certainly does come across much more presidential. What, of course, what should matter is the quality of the decision making. And I, I have, uh, and you know that I'm a fan of Biden. I believe that if Biden had run against Trump in 16, we would have had President Biden in 2017. Um, I, I, but I'm, a, I'm just afraid that Joe has... And you were, not a, has, and you were not a Trump it. fan in 2016. I was not. And no. we wouldn't have a vaccine, though. Right. But that, that's possible as well. I, 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 agree, yeah. I agree with that as well. When we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, wherever you are listening from uh, coast to coast and around the uh, nation. Obviously, it is on March 17th, but in Chicago, we celebrate all of our holidays <laughs> a little ahead of time. So uh, the river was dyed green uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, a lot of the celebrations that uh, took place, although they were considerably muted than they have been uh, uh, in the past. I want to go back, uh, kind of switch gears. We've got one more segment left with uh, Rebecca and uh, with Stephanie. So, uh, Rebecca, I want to go to you. Uh, obviously, you're happy that uh, uh, Kamala Harris is the vice president of the United States. Um, there are those that believe that uh, uh, she will probably replace President Biden at some point because of age or some other reason. Um, I assume you think she's doing a good job as vice president. But uh, is she prepared to wait, uh, you know, four years before she makes a move? Uh, or is it going to be earlier than that if indeed she wants to replace him someday? Well, I think that the, the general presidential election calendar is, is pretty set, what, you know, whether Republican or Democrat, right? Uh, whoever the candidate is, the people start to gear up a couple of day, you know, years in advance. Right. They go out there and talk to people, start raising money, decide whether they want to go for it or not. So, mm -hmm. you know, with, with a vice president, it's a more difficult uh, thing to do because of course you want to remain respectful of your president who may decide to run for re-election, in which case doing all that is is a moot point as well as rude. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the vice president faces the same challenges as say, you know, any other vice president would have, which is, you know, how to figure this out uh, while holding the office and respecting the office. Do you think in, in the issues that the country is facing at the moment and the Biden administration is facing, uh, do you think that the situation on the Mexican border is the the, the biggest crisis now that we have uh, uh, the, uh, the the COVID relief bill behind us? I think Rebecca? the biggest crisis uh, the biggest crisis right now, and I think for the foreseeable future, is how to uh, bring an economy back that works for everyone who 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 wants to work and for every family. And so, you know, within that context, obviously securing the borders and managing border situations is important, but with the, uh, you know, the economy is not in good shape at the moment and it's not clear how things will roll out. So 
I would say that's the biggest challenge. Mike Miller, as an economist, you said uh, earlier in the broadcast, you're not a big fan of this uh, $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief plan uh, or package. Um, How will you determine whether or not this package is a success or not? What 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 changes or, or numbers are you going to be looking at? Well, we have to take a look and see what happens to uh, the growth of the economy, which I'm, like I say, the prediction would be that the multiplier is very small, so it won't make GDP grow that fast. Uh, we have to find out if, in fact, this idea of the moral hazard that the states realize if they behave badly, they can always just ask the federal government for a bailout. Will they continue to behave badly and hope that the government bails them out? These things will take years to to be fulfilled. Um, so, I, you know, you can't give a, I can't give a direct answer today based upon mm-hmm. economics as to whether this package was going to be good or bad. Uh, certainly, it's going to help the people who are still unemployed. But from but, a, uh, from, from was a mentioning about the economy, yeah. we have to remember that on the 1st of March last year, unemployment was about 3.6%. Inflation was under control. Incomes were growing for all sectors of the economy from top to bottom. Income increases at the bottom income levels were greater than at the top. So it was a very inclusive economy under Mr. Trump at the time. What destroyed all that was the pandemic and then the decision to shut down. And uh, the way in which states uh, respond to this, I mean, obviously, the state of Texas is open. Mississippi is open. There's a half a dozen states that have now opened uh, up to 100 percent. Is that where we're going to see the the other side of the political coin as to whether or not whether we're whether we're measuring success in Texas or are we well, measuring one, success in Illinois? Where it's one thing not to recognize, economists have been saying from the very beginning that the shutdown is a portion of the cause of the of the economic disaster that we had over the past uh, twelve months. Mm-hmm. But the second piece is that people are simply afraid to go out, and as long as you keep the population afraid, people are going to be afraid. That's why I think that this this shutdown has been a disaster. And anybody who's talking, uh, how Mr. Biden seems to say, oh, you might be able to get together by July, even though we may be at herd immunity. I swear they're trying to keep us afraid so that they can be in control. Right. I think the people could spend it. The people could get out there. The economy would do fine. Definitely. If you ask me, I'd say right now what I think is our biggest crisis is the vaccine rollout. And that that's where all the government efforts and focus should be. And that is precisely because when you look at this COVID relief bill, it's written in such a way with the idea that we're going to be living like we have been for the last year for a long time. It, it's assuming that we're going to be operating at a percentage of capacity and that people are going to remain on the unemployment rolls. And, I, you know, I maybe I'm being simplistic. Mike, you might give me an F in class. I don't know. But I I would say that um, you get everybody vaccinated and you tell people to go back to work and that they can open up and live a normal life. I think we'd see we won't need these kind of packages and stimuluses. These things were developed with the idea that we're not going to go back to normal. And as you can see in these other states, people are going to go back. Are we going to have a problem doing it? Are we going to have a problem, Rebecca, if. We reach a plateau of people that have had their vaccines, and 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 the needle isn't going to move much beyond that. We're not we're not going to get to herd mentality, because a number of Americans have chosen whether whatever their political persuasion is, they've chosen they don't trust it. They're not going to get it, and and they are going to keep the rest of us 
from reaching herd mentality. Does that worry you personally? Well, I, I've been listening to Dr. Fauci, you know, I guess we've all been listening to him for now about yeah. a year. And, you know, I think that, you know, he's he and his colleagues uh, are the experts on this. And, you know, they're saying that everyone should be vaccinated for the very same reason that, you know, we get vaccinated for, you know, other potential, you know, life-threatening diseases. But not so, everybody believes Dr. Fauci. You know, There's a lot of people that don't that, believe anything right. that's coming from that the threatening for everybody. Yeah, and go ahead. That's, part of that's the problem that, you know, people are choosing to reject sound medical advice. And what about the Great Barrington behavior on their part? What about the Great Barrington statement by very competent and uh, 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 scientists and doctors who said that the shutdown was crazy and that Fauci is wrong? Fauci is the same man who told us not to wear a mask, then to wear masks, and now to wear three masks. Right. I, I, there have been people on both sides of this. I think endocrinologists or whoever the, the group is, uh, they're, well, they're taking a big hit the way economists did during the Great Recession. And we can say, you know what? Our our country has been a perfect um, laboratory for this because we have we have a variety of states that have taken mm-hmm. a variety of measures. So everybody can look and see for themselves what policies worked and which ones didn't. And you'll see that in terms of where people are going to start migrating, where they're going to move to go to work, where they go for spring break, what they do, where – we're going to start to see what works and what doesn't when we start to see, um, you know, employment rates change in different states. I think one of the things is our states are going to prove out what has worked and what hasn't worked. But we're I also, think- according to a poll that was on one of the shows today, 60 percent of Republican men don't want to get the vaccine. Well, they probably this don't feel a- at risk. Well, but I mean- if you if you take 60 percent of Republican men and you take a a portion of the African-American community, which distrusts the federal government for a variety of reasons, and you've got people out there within the the anti-vax movement. I mean, that's that's not a... uh, Right. We don't know how large a group it is, but it's a vocal group. Uh, You've got a lot of people that are saying no to the vaccine. Well, you know, it's interesting. I heard, uh, I forget who it was today... Dr. Fauci was interviewed today, and I, I don't know if I disagree with him, is if Donald Trump were to come out, and I don't I don't know if Donald Trump has had the vaccine, has yes, he? Yes, he did. Did yes, he get he the did vaccine? secret before if, he left the White House. And the, you By know, the way, I, I made a mistake. It was, it's 40% of Republicans, right. not and, 60%. And if, if he were to come out and say, hey, guys, I got you this vaccine. It's great. It's going to work. Um, if he were to come out, I think that would go a long way to a lot of people. Fauci said the same thing. Getting that, yeah, exactly. But is he going to do it? He is uh, not. Probably I don't. not. He can't admit he's, that. He I think he's willing to let this no. be Biden's no problem. Re- Rebecca. On this issue and on numerous others, he's shown no ability to admit that he made a mistake at the same time as he takes measures of self-preservation. So on this point, he and his wife, the first lady at that time, got vaccinated before they left the White House and told nobody, not the American public, I agree with you, Stephanie, that would have been helpful. Why not? Because he would have admitted that he erred, that this was uh, important. Well, I don't well, know. Well, also, I, I mean, we got a situation for well, him. He's also over, he's yeah. over 65. 
well, the, and age is the number one criterion in deciding how dangerous this is. I don't understand why a 40-year-old Republican male who is healthy would necessarily need to have this vaccine because it, it they end up with a cold. They well, by the way, this a, it was not a 40-year-old. 40% of Republicans. I understand. Yeah. Uh, I'm but, saying but, yeah. a lot of that 40% right. could be people who simply, uh, how many people don't get the annual flu vaccine? Yeah. Well, and and what we learned people. is that's it's our decision. The vulnerable. If we can protect our vulnerable, this doesn't become a crisis. I got my first vaccine. Second one I coming know. up on the 22nd. I'll have two. I'm still and, too uh, young. Full morbidities, and I, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm over 65 considerably, and I'm morbidly obese. On that note, I say thank you to Rebecca Sive and thank you to Stephanie Hitt. Uh, when we come back, Mike Miller and I will continue our discussion in another direction. Back shortly. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. And uh, wherever you're listening, uh, if you have questions, uh, 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. Let me briefly set up uh, this, uh, this discussion, and this is for people around the country, because our next guest believes that the, the phenomenon of the Trump administration and the, and the Trump surprise in 2016, it, it has its seeds many, many years before. And uh, in the state of Illinois in 1986, that's 35 years ago, uh, actually next week, there was a Democratic primary. And the big part of the primary was that Adlai Stevenson uh, was running for governor of Illinois. He was making a run against Jim Thompson, who was the incumbent Republican. That's the, that's the big, big story here. And uh, both the Republicans and Democrats put their respective parties together uh, and their tickets together. And uh, the Democrats, uh, they nominated a longtime uh, state senator by the name of George Sangmeister from downstate Illinois uh, to be the running mate, the lieutenant gubernatorial running mate with Adlai Stevenson. And this is when governors and lieutenant governors ran uh, ran as separate uh, candidates, although they were then joined together uh, on the general election. And the secretary of state candidate was Aurelia Puchinski, whose father was one of the most powerful political leaders uh, in Illinois, or certainly in the Chicagoland area, a longtime alderman, leader of the Polish community. And uh, they were the two primary uh, leaders, the the endorsed Democratic candidates for Secretary of State and Lieutenant Governor. And then the voters voted. And the voters chose two relatively unknown candidates, a Mark Fairchild— 
for lieutenant governor and a Janice Hart for secretary of state. And they turned out to be supporters of Lyndon LaRouche, who then was a very controversial figure, so controversial that Adlai Stevenson refused to run with uh, Mark Fairchild as his lieutenant governor, did not want him to be a heartbeat away. And so he ended up giving up his spot on the Democratic ticket, and uh, there was no Democrat for uh, governor that year. And Adlai Stevenson formed a new party called the Solidarity Party, and uh, he ran as the Solidarity candidate for governor, and he lost to James Thompson, who won uh, re-election. So uh, that, that's the background upon which we begin our discussion. And uh, uh, Gerald uh, Pechnik, am I getting your name spelled uh, pronounced properly, Gerald? You hit it right on the head, Bruce. Okay, well, it's I'm a, a Ukrainian word for baker. Baker, so, okay. <laughs> well, Gerald, nice to have you with us. And, and Mike Miller from DePaul University uh, continues with us as well, being an economist. But my question to you is, you you have made the point. I'm, I'm going to give the headline at the beginning of our interview and then let you tell your story. You believe that what happened and, and the surprise that Donald Trump pulled in 2016 uh, it, it it had the seeds that were planted in Illinois in 1986. Uh, elaborate on that and uh, fill in any of the uh, of the points that uh, I failed to make in my introduction. Well, first of all, Bruce, this is a first. It's the first time you've had this show for 40 years, and yeah. this is the first time you've had a LaRouche guy on. So right. we're still we're still doing first. Yeah, and I I think that and the, you're with LaRouche Pack now. Although Lyndon LaRouche, LaRouche is long gone from the scene, he passed away many years ago. The LaRouche pack is alive and well, and and you you are still with them. So, uh, what 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 was it? What were the seeds planted that led, in your view, to Donald Trump? The seeds were planted in 1980 when you started your show. Okay, it's when Ronald Reagan captured the blue collar Democrats to support him against the Trilateral Commission, Jimmy Carter. And Mr. LaRouche and Mr. Reagan had a meeting in New Hampshire when they were seated next to each other that led to a collaborative relationship, which resulted in Reagan adopting LaRouche's policy called Strategic Defense Initiative, officially March 23rd, 1983. So what we had is a phenomenon, which if you take the 40 years in an hourglass, as Shakespeare said in Henry V, if you looked at it as time-lapse photography, you see the globalist establishment with the Trilateral Commission and these nudniks in the Democratic Party who just have single issue this and single issue that and have no idea the global financial system, as our friend the economist here can tell you, there's $7 trillion on the Federal Reserve balance sheets right mm -hmm. now. The repo market is the, 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 tottering from day to day. The Federal Reserve is in... But, Ger big, big but, Gerald, so, go, but Gerald, yes. going back going back to 1986, you, you talked about an, an introduction between LaRouche and Ronald Reagan back in 1980. But let, let's yeah. let's telescope now to uh, to our 35th anniversary coming up next week. There was this yeah. primary. Uh, yeah. You were on the ballot. Uh, yep. How how were how were the candidacies of Fairchild and uh, Hart? How were they reported on? 
by the media in Illinois at that time and, and even nationally? They were not reported on. That's how they were reported on. Mm -hmm. We, uh, In fact, you brought up St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1986, the day before March 18th primary. Yeah. I spent an hour and a half in the Federal Reserve building. We had a demonstration against the financial stupidities of the Federal Reserve, and there was no coverage in the media, even though I called up Lynn Sweet at Sun-Times, Pearson of the Tribune, WGN, WBBM, eh. We ain't covering LaRouche. You guys, in fact, the media reported saying Meister was running unopposed. So were just you like running, today with Trump, were you the, running the media other doesn't cover what he okay. says. Were you running, when I say you, I mean the LaRouche uh, movement at that time, were you running other candidates in other states for down-ballot positions? Uh, you know something, Bruce? I got a map of 1980. Three, we were running 500 candidates in 1983, okay. 750 in 86. Statewide. And the media wouldn't say a word about it because we were talking about nuclear energy. We were talking about a war on drugs, classical education. Look how horrible the schools are now. These people have not learned their lesson. They've made the same bullshit mistakes. Watch your over language. Watch your language, please. We're on the okay. radio. We can't use okay. terms like that on the on, on the radio. All right. Now, Excuse so my, my, my question my my question is I, I, I'm I'm trying to lay out the land of of what was going on there in 1986. You say there were how many candidates running in all the other states in 86? Over, over, in 86, 750, and okay. the Democratic pollster, Mr. Michael McCune told the DNC LaRouche candidates were going to win. And he got fired because yes. he was in Joliet. He saw the response we were getting from the blue collar workers. He did a survey for the iron workers union and he told them LaRouche is going to win. And we were getting 40, 30, 50, 25 percent of the vote, 82, 83, 84 and 86. Mm -hmm. We won. And I'll tell you this, Adlie Stevenson made a big mistake because he probably would end up being president of the United States. He almost won the 82 election. Some say it was fraud. We was, there was no recount, even though he lost by only a few thousand. That was specious. He would have won 86 going away. And I believe he would have run for president in 1988 and won. And he had spoken with Mr. LaRouche in previous years. And they basically saw it eye to eye about this global financial problem. So why Adley Stevenson was threatened or whatever happened that got him to drop off was a big mistake on his part, in my estimation. But, he should have stayed on the ticket. Okay, but 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 let, let's let's go back and 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 tell the story uh, as to because success you had success in Illinois, you did not have success in any other state. Correct? Wrong. In fact. LaRouche Democratic candidate Keisha Rogers won the Democratic nomination for Congress in 2010, 2012, and finished second and got in the Democratic Senate runoff in Texas on the theme of impeach Obama and save NASA space program. There's a growing movement in this country to 75 million people now who don't buy the media's baloney, who don't believe the globalists, like Trump said, the future is in the sovereign nation states, not in the globalists. But again, in nineteen in 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 nineteen eighty six, you made the point that the news media was not covering your campaign. 
What, what was your campaign doing to spread the messages that you've shared tonight as to what your position were? If the media was not spreading that word, uh, uh, what were you guys saying in the precincts? Well, we had farm conference calls with farmers from all over the country. We had tours all over. In fact, it was because people like Amelia Robinson, the hero of Selma, Alabama, was endorsing LaRouche. Eulen Jack, the borough president of Manhattan, when I was a kid in New York, who asked LaRouche to come in the Democratic Party. LaRouche had originally run as independent in the U.S. Labor Party in 1976. It was the African-American community that rallied around LaRouche, Rosemary Love from Cook County, for example, Cook County Commissioner, Amelia Robinson, Eulen Jack, tremendous number of farm leaders from the American Ag Movement. It was a constituency of production. It was an Abraham Lincoln, Lyndon LaRouche, and today Donald Trump called for returning to the American system. Lyndon LaRouche was talking about Alexander Hamilton 30 years before it was a Broadway show. Linda Lewis was talking about we're a gonna, credit system. Gerald, we're going we're gonna to pause right now. Uh, we're going to open up our phone lines, 1-800-723-8289. I want to talk about some contemporary issues as well. But I want to finish the story that we began as to uh, what happened, the surprise that happened 35 years ago. And again, Mike Miller from DePaul University joins me, and uh, we'll engage with him as well. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, Gerald Puchnik joins us. And uh, uh, Mike Miller, uh, do you have any comment about uh, some of the uh, suggestions that uh, Lyndon LaRouche has made over the years? Was he, uh, uh, the media generally described him as somewhat of a crackpot back in 1986. They also said that he was anti-Semitic. And I want to get Gerald to respond to it, but I want to get your assessment midway through this interview as to uh, uh, some of the, the the points that uh, Gerald is making. I don't know about his uh, the accusation about anti-Semitism. I have looked at his background. I'm I just interested in politics, so I've looked at his background uh, in terms of economics. And he started out as a Marxist, from uh, from what everything I can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he became a glo- uh, um, 
against global. The only thing I have about him and Mr. Trump, uh, Lyndon LaRouche, for example, was very much in favor of regulation and uh, regulation of the banks. And, and Mr. Trump was one of the great deregulators. Uh, Lyndon LaRouche was in favor of, of uh, exchange rate controls and ex uh, financial uh, controlling of money moving in and out of the country, which Mr. Trump never did. Um, I know Mr. Trump had some problems with the Federal Reserve, but he never moved for the dissolution of the Federal Reserve. So I think that there are a few things that America first maybe is the one thing that that is common between the two men. But I, I don't see a lot of uh, strong connections then between uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. LaRouche. Gerald? Yeah. Uh, Professor Miller, for your information, uh, Jack Lynch of Chicago, who for Midwest Bank, was the Republican Party delegate at the Cleveland 2016 convention who, who uh, called for Glass-Steagall, just what you call regulated banking, to be put into the Republican Party platform. And uh, his work with Senator Barrasso, and uh, they called Trump Tower and said, does Trump want Glass-Steagall in the Republican Party platform? And the answer was yes. And Donald Trump campaigned for Glass-Steagall. So the premise of what you're saying, the premise of what you're saying is totally incorrect. No, uh, let's, let, let, let's let, yeah, let's let it, Mike- It is because, I'll tell Carol, you why. Let's, make Mike Mo, let's, Miller, let's let Mike Miller respond to what you've said and then we'll go back to you. Glass-Steagall was an act which uh, separated investment banking from traditional banking, and I understand that Mr. LaRouche stood for that particular aspect of it. I, I know that Mr. Trump also uh, dabbled in that idea, but he certainly did not make it a centerpiece of his of his uh, administration in any way, or he would have tried to push for the, the recreation of the Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, the fact that somebody says, yeah, that might, that might be okay, doesn't mean that they endorse it. Uh, Mr. LaRouche was a very strong uh, supporter, for example, of the gold standard. Mr. Trump never once mentioned about going back to a gold standard. So I, Gerald, let me let me ask a couple of other questions, okay? Because I want to go back to uh, the origins of, of this 35th anniversary and whether there's something uh, unique about it. Uh, most uh, political historians, as they look back at that time, they may agree with you that Adlai Stevenson missed the boat. Obviously, he had to go and, and run uh, as a Solidarity Party candidate in 82. He gave up the Democratic position, and it certainly disrupted any plans that he might have had to seek the presidency in, two th in 1988. But my question is, most people say that because Mark Fairchild— was running against a guy by the name of George Sangmeister and that Janice Hart was running against someone by the name of Aurelia Puchinski, that in downstate Illinois, because of the, the, the ethnic-sounding names of Puchinski and Sangmeister, that that's what caused people to go for a good ballot name of which Mark Fairchild and Janice Hart had good ballots, ballot names. Now, it's a political operative. Would you acknowledge that a lot can be said for that assessment of what happened in 1986. They had great ballot names. Two things. One, we also won two congressional nominations, Dominic Jeffrey in the 13th district and Bill Brenner in the 15th district. Good names. We won school, yeah, we won school board races. We won precinct races. So I believe this is like, 
They're trying to make up an excuse for the fact they didn't do their job. The media has not done their job properly. They eat, LaRouche has four laws. For example, just on, on Mr. Miller's point there, Donald Trump has been a huge advocate of the space program, mm -hmm. just like Lyndon LaRouche, just like John F. Kennedy. In fact, our leaflet we went out with this year to Trump rallies is Donald Trump, the best Democrat since JFK. Massive success with the Artemis space program. What great future for the kids, but the space program like it was when we were kids. What when, do you, right yeah, now, dealing with, dealing with some contemporary issues, okay? Now, by, sure. by the way, uh, is, is the LaRouche position on, on, on state ballots, is it applicable anywhere in the United States? Well, right now, see, when, when we ran that campaign in 86, Mark Fairchild was all of 28 years old. Right. I, I was 34 years old. We're looking at getting a whole bunch of young people into running for office. And I think we'll How? have some announcements in on what that. And what party will they be running in? Well, that that's still subject to discussion. But I think right now we can say... With the uh, with the neocons and the Wall Street types, uh, you know, running the other way from Trump, I think we'll have a Lincoln Larouche Trump Republican type situation developing in the future. Okay, so the linkage the linkage you're trying to put together is to resurrect elements of the Larouche movement, utilize a Republican primary apparatus to get some of your people elected to congress or something else and to cooperate okay. in a bipartisan faction 25 percent okay. of people came to trump we're rallies. out of time we're democrats we're out of time gerald petchnik thank you very much from larouche back well thank you and bruce and for really sticking with it for 40 years okay. You're, you've shown tremendous dedication thank you and mike miller thank you very much i'm bruce dumont see you next week What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. 
to do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling, we have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.